All right, if you can get your Bibles open to uh, Romans. I'm going to be reading from Romans uh, chapter 6 and a bit from chapter 8. So, Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1 through 14, and then chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And then Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Good morning, everybody. Um, this is one of those days where you really do want a Bible open in front of you, so if you don't have one, you might want to duck up the back, grab one from the box under the table up there. Um, when we work through, we've been working through Romans for, I don't know, a number of weeks. The last few weeks we've gone over little short pieces. Today we're looking across two and a half chapters, so I can't expect to cover everything. But when we work through books of the Bible, the goal is to make it accessible for you to keep reading and keep studying and keep thinking about. So hopefully you'll come away with a better understanding of how it all fits, fits together, if nothing else. Um, next week, Tom will take us through the rest of chapter 8. So back to short again. The week after that, we'll go through three chapters. And then I'll go on long service leave and leave you to think about it. But let's pray as we look at this part of the Bible. Heavenly Father, we just ask that as we look at these words on the page, Lord, please help them to make sense for us. Lord, we pray that you would be speaking to our hearts, transforming our minds. We pray that you would help us to live for you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do with the problem of Christians sinning, the problem of sin in the life of a Christian? That's the thing that sits behind um, this part of Romans, I would say. And I reckon uh, when you're looking at such a big chunk, if you zoom in on these verses in chapter 8 and just let them be the thing you go away mulling on, I think that'll be a very helpful way to go. So chapter 8, verse 14 reads, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Christians, followers of Jesus, are adopted children of God. And you let that sink in. You think about the relationship between parents and kids. Parents, we care for our kids. If they do something wrong, we don't disown them. We help them through that problem, that mess. We have patience with our kids. Children, on the other hand, should respect their parents honour them, obey them. Um, there are standards that parents have, the expectations that we have of our kids. But what happens when the children disobey? Well, you don't cut them off, you don't disown them. Keep thinking about those verses. Look what happens when Christians sin. 
Look at the, if you think about what happens when Christians sin, look at verse 15 again. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. So as we think about this issue of sin in the life of a Christian, relax. God is our heavenly father. He cares for us. But that doesn't mean that as his children, we should be spoilt kids. Spoilt kids, they kind of turn their parents, um, well, have no regard for their parents, authority or anything. They, when the parents give an inch, the kid will take a mile. And spoilt kids tend to grow up into spoilt adults. Spoilt adults are the kind of people who have no regard for authority, no respect for authority. They take little notice of the needs of other people. They're consumed with themselves, this self-centeredness, their own desires and their passions. And around churches, you'll find people, Christians, who live in a similar way. Like spoiled kids, people who think they understand God's grace and God's mercy, but what they're doing is they're turning God's grace and his mercy into a license to do whatever they want with no regard for the consequences. They treat God's forgiveness as a blank check. They abuse God's generosity to the point of disregarding the lordship of Jesus. As Christians, we believe or trust in Jesus as our saviour and as our lord, our king. Spoiled kids disregard that second part. They don't treat Jesus as their lord. In most cases, um, turning grace into license, it's fairly subtle. It's a kind of lethargic sort of thing. Um, the type of Christians who aren't motivated to be godly. Don't even try to do what's right. And then when you think about it, yeah, there's a bit of that in each of us. A bit of this tendency to turn God's forgiveness and his generosity, his mercy, into a license to do what we want to do. I reckon there's two issues sitting behind this passage as we think about sin in the life of, of a believer, and that's the first one, this issue of turning grace into license. The second one is, is the issue of legalism. Uh, a kid who's a legalistic kid or a child of God who's a legalistic child, you know, legalistic kids, they're the ones that go, Daddy said you could only have one of those. And they know the rules. They know exactly what needs to happen. Or they'll come around and say, um, I've done everything that mummy told us to do and you haven't. There's this kind of comparing yourself against other people, this legalism, this attention to detail. And surprisingly enough, uh, legalistic children tend to grow up into legalistic adults people who think they've got everything sorted, people who compare themselves by their standards and other people's failures to make themselves look better. And surprisingly enough, we see legalists in Christian circles as well, people who put their confidence in their own ability to keep their own rules, people who put their confidence in their ability uh, to please God by their actions, and people who look down their noses on others and are quick to judge them. And in all honesty, it's my observation that Presbyterian churches, we tend to be a happy home for legalists. We make it easy for legalists to find a home. The Apostle Paul knows or knew all about legalism. If you think about the way he grew up, he was a Pharisee, knew the, the Old Testament inside out, back to front. His legalism blinded him to the truth of the gospel, so much so that he persecuted Christians. So when the Apostle Paul says stuff about legalism and about the law, he understands. He knows what he's talking about. And legalism, it's not pretty. It's an ugly thing. Um, Paul was an extreme case, but again, there's 
a little bit of legalism built into each of us. So the two problems, on the one hand, license, turning grace into license, and on the other hand, legalism. Um, If you look back at chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, rather than legalism and license, what we should be aiming at is to live by the Spirit of God. So verse 14 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. When you think about it, both license, turning grace into license, and legalism, yes, they played Christian churches. What they do, though, is they undermine the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom to live for God. Because legalism and license focus in on us. Legalism focuses on our achievements. License focuses on our passions. Both legalism and license, they're the unwanted symptoms of sin in the life of a believer. And both, ultimately, being self-centered, draw us away from the freedom that we have in Christ. They undermine the gospel, the very heart of the gospel that the Apostle Paul's been explaining through these chapters of, of Romans So as we come into, that's the kind of the long-winded, windy introduction to looking at these passages. Keep 8, 14, 15 in mind. Think about legalism and license and living by the Spirit. When we come to this passage, though, we're we're diving into the middle of this ongoing argument of Paul's. It goes way back to chapter 1, verse 16, where he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. He says back in chapter 1, verse 17, for in the gospel of righteousness from God's revealed, a way to be right with God through faith in Jesus and nothing else. It's a gift of being righteous. That was back in chapter 1. This explanation of the gospel that he's preaching, that he wants to bring to Rome, that he wants the Romans to support him in taking beyond Rome to Spain, if you put chapters 1 and 15 together. This gospel that he's preaching, he's explaining to the Romans and defending it. And this goes through 11 chapters worth until just before Christmas, while we're on long service leave, Steve will take you into chapter 12, and you'll see, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's where we're heading. Eleven chapters of understanding the gospel, how it works, inside, out, and then live in a way that shows you understand God's mercy, God's gift, God's forgiveness. Across these eleven chapters... There's this debate going on that Paul kind of, he writes in this debate mode. What if, what are, what this, all these questions. So if you look in the passage today, the first question's there in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You look at that and you think, what a stupid question. And of course you don't. But he's, he's playing through the logic of this as he explains the gospel. You look at um, 6 verse 15, there's the next question there. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law? but under grace. You think, what's the difference with the last question? It's this fine-tuned detail as he argues for the truth of the gospel. Then there's another one in chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's defending the gospel that he's preaching, and he does it for 11 chapters. If you look on the screen behind me, that's all the questions. All those verses will have a question. Behind it, you'll see similar Greek words. This, this, This debate format. What if? What if? What if? As he unpacks and explains the gospel of grace. Um, 11 chapters of it, building to chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, right, in view of God's mercy. Here we are, though, back in chapter 6, we're looking at essentially three of those questions, understanding this gospel. Um, If you have a look at 6, verse 1, the first question there, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul's answer is expected, of course not. You don't go on sinning so God's grace will increase. He says, we're dead to sin. He says, we died with Christ 
and we live with Christ. This idea that we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Why would you go on sinning? It doesn't make sense. Um, and you notice the mention of baptism there in verse 3. Um, baptism is a sign of belonging to Jesus, being a follower of Jesus. If you're baptized into his death, you're baptized into his resurrection as well. You're included in Christ. So why would you go on sinning? Um, for, uh, ought we go on sinning? No, we shouldn't. In fact, we should put off the old way of living, if you look down in verse 6. Um, when you think about this, what he's describing is an ongoing work. So you become a Christian, you put your, your faith in Jesus. Yes, you're forgiven. You become a child of God. But putting to death the sin in your life takes time, takes effort, takes energy. It's an ongoing work. We don't want to behave like spoiled kids who turn grace into license. And so we keep working at this, if you want to call it sanctification, call it that, this process of putting to, get, to death the sin in our lives. Um, you read a bit more into this, you get down to verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Um, as a Christian, you, you've given up the old way of living, the way described in chapter 1 of suppressing the truth about God. You've given that up. You want to live to please Jesus as your Lord. Um, we ought, should we, ought, verse 1 says, ought we go on sinning? Well, of course not. We live to please God. And you look down in verse 14, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under, under law but under grace. It's, it's part of this building argument of Paul's. Um, we're adopted children of God, he'll get to in chapter 8, verse 14, the verses you're thinking about mulling over, turning around. We're adopted children of God. We want to live to please our Father in heaven. So we put to death the old way of living. When you think about it, um, Satan is the deceiver. You know, he, he deceives you, tricks you, tempts you. And then when you cave in and do the wrong thing, Satan becomes the accuser, stands before God and goes, look what they did. It's a horrible situation to be in. But as followers of Jesus, we know we're children of God. Jesus stands there defending us, saying, no, I've got them. I'm looking after them. We know we're forgiven. If you look at 8 verse 1, we know there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and yet we keep working at putting to, get to death the sin that's in our lives. It's an ongoing process. Um, you come to the second question, this debate format. The second question is there in 6 verse 15. It's almost like a response straight out of verse 14. Should we sin because we're no longer under the law? And the answer again, of course, is no, you shouldn't. And you look at this question, you think, this is just pedantry, this question. I mean, it's very similar to the last one. It's like you're playing around with a lawyer here. You know, those cagey type of people know the way around or every word and every loophole. It is like that. But when you think about it, he's talking about legalism here as well. That's appropriate. And there's a logic to the progression of thought here. In 6 verses 1 to 13, um, the compulsion not to sin comes from being united with Christ. You belong with him and so don't sin. And then from 15 um, through the rest of the chapter, it's this idea that you're enslaved to God. It's a slightly different idea, isn't it? You're slaves to God, living for God. Um, in other words, the second half of chapter 6 focuses on our obedience as Christians, that we want to please God. There is a twist 
in this logic, though, because as slaves of God, we're actually free. So have a look at it, verse 20. When you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Christians, you've got this incredible freedom. You're not, no feelings of guilt, incredible freedom to please God and live for him, to be slaves of God. I know we're moving very quickly over these chapters. It builds through chapter 7, then you come to chapter 8, and the picture changes to being not slaves but children of God. But if you turn to chapter 7 now, um, as you look through chapter 7, this is all about the law and the place of the Old Testament law. It's been ongoing through these chapters of Romans, but here it's now center stage, and the law is mentioned in every verse of those first 14 verses. Um, The key point is that as Christians, we are free from the authority of the law. We're not bound under the law. And so the first illustration um, helps you understand that. So if you pick it up in verse seven, verse, chapter 7, verse 1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, I take it that means predominantly Jewish Christians, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law was under authority over someone only as long as the person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds him to her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. It's an illustration. It's like saying we're not under the law. It's, it's like a marriage. It's finished. The husband's dead. We're not bound by the law. The law is still there, but you're, it's not, you're not bound to it. And the point comes in 7 verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who has raised you from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So as new covenant Christians, as New Testament Christians, the old covenant is not binding on us any longer. We have a new marriage. We're in a new relationship. We're free to serve God without being condemned by the Old Testament law. Putting this together with the second half of chapter 6, we live by the Spirit as slaves of righteousness. That's our, our setting. Um, I once heard this illustration to kind of help you understand the way chapter 7 works. Um, and it's a bit dated, but I can't think of a better one. So there's this single man who um, hired a housemaid, someone to look after all the stuff that had to happen in his house, and he had rules on his fridge. He liked breakfast at 8 o'clock, um, lunch at 12, dinner at 7. After dinner... Um, the washing had to be done and the food scraps needed to be sorted because some has to go to the compost and some of the, the, the food scraps will go to the dog for the dog to eat. Now, the housemaid, she didn't like these rules. She hated the dog. The thing she particularly hated was sorting through the rubbish after dinner. She disliked the rules, but she was obedient because it was her job. She was bound to do these things or find another job. Now, over time, um, romance blossomed. The single man got interested in the housemaid and vice versa. And to cut the romantic um, story short, they got married. And as soon as they got married, of course, 
the guy took the stuff off the fridge, all those rules. You don't need them anymore. He put them in the compost, let them decompose. But here's the thing. Now that she didn't have to keep the rules, she knew what pleased her husband. And so she was very quick to do things that she knew he would please him. She even sorted the compost when she was able to, and she even took the dog for a walk. It's, it's like that with the Old Testament law. It's, no, it's not binding on us any longer, but it's still there. We read the Old Testament. We understand God's laws, his decrees. We understand how the, old people, the people of the Old Testament needed to obey. We're not bound by it, but we don't ignore it. We don't throw it away. 7 verse 6 says, But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Does it start to make sense? That's living by the spirit, living to please God. If you grew up in a Jewish home, then now as a Christian, you're released from the law. If, like me, you never grew up in a Christian home, well, you don't put yourself under the Old Testament law. It's not going to help you. Um, think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that Sermon on the Mount. He says in the Old Covenant, it says, do not murder, but I say, don't even get angry. He says in the Old Covenant, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't even look with lust. You know, as Christians, we don't ignore the Old Covenant. We do better. We aim higher because we're free to serve God, to be slaves to God. As New Testament Christians, we, we don't tear out the Old Testament and throw it away. We read it and understand how it applied to the Jews in the Old Testament and then how we can live to please God. We don't disregard the Old Testament, but it doesn't hang over us as a burden. It doesn't condemn us because we have Jesus defending us before God. We are God's children. We're adopted into his family. Um, so you notice in chapter 7 there's another one of those questions. Um, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say? Is the law sin? And we know the response. No, it's not. The law is good, but it's the human nature that makes it sinful, that makes it fail. If we place ourselves under the law, then the sinful nature twists the law. So if you have a look at verse 7, uh, yeah, 7 verse 7, you'll see it. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would, have, would not have known what coveting really was. If the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So it's not the law that's, that's evil. It's our sinful nature. The law says this is what coveting is. Oh, let's give that a shot. But there's more to this, if you keep reading on. Um, this is, uh, I mean, that's just one example of the way the sinful nature will twist the law. Um, in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, I think what the apostle's doing is showing us what it's like if you put yourself under the law. So if you want to put yourself under the law, this is what it will be like. Verse 17 onwards reads like this honest confession of a legalist who's come to terms with the fact that we're saved by grace and not by law-keeping. Sounds like a person who attempts to place himself under the Old Testament law. So verse 19, for I do not, uh, for I do, not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. This I keep on doing. Now I do what I, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me who does it. I know it's a tongue twister, but you get the point. It's the way this thing works. You want to be a legalist? You're going to come undone. You won't be able to do the things you want to do. 
Verse 21 goes on, So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another work, another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, growing up in a Christian home, this is one of the struggles I had, I reckon, thinking that you've got to be a good person to be a Christian. And the more you try, the more you realize it doesn't, I can't do it. And it drives you back to the mercy of God, the free forgiveness that we have in Jesus. So I think when you look across those verses, it's the person who wants to be a legalist. And that's where they end up. Point and throw them back at the gospel of Jesus. Verse 25, you're, you're driven back to Jesus. The Old Testament law reveals sin for what it is. It's rebelling against God. The Old Testament law shows our inability to keep those rules, pushes you back to forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And then chapter 8 opens in verse 1 with, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and works back to those verses that we started with in verses uh, 14 to 15. We're now adopted children of God. We live by the Spirit. There's no issue with guilt any longer. So when you look across um, chapters 6 through the first half of 8, yeah, it's a long section, but I hope you can see how it all fits together. It's this ongoing explanation or this defense of the gospel that Paul preaches. He wants to preach it in Rome. He wants to take it beyond Rome to Spain. Look across these chapters and I think you see the problem of sin being turned over and around. Um, We ought to be living in this new relationship, this new covenant relationship with God. We're children of God, living by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And then there's the two warnings as you think about all these things. The warning not to be a legalist and the, the, the warning not to fall into license. License, the issue with the license is it's Satan conning you into believing that God doesn't care about sin. If that's what you think, have a look at the Old Testament. Have a look at the people of God in the Old Testament, how God judged his own people for their sin. Reacquaint yourself with the seriousness of sin, the sin which Jesus has died for, to pay for. So yes, we're not condemned any longer, but we do strive to be godly. Legalism, the issue with legalism, don't get conned into thinking, that as living as an Old Testament Christian is a good thing. Legalism, it, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible for people around you as you look down on them and judge them. It's terrible for you as you try to meet up to these rid- ridiculous expectations. Um, if you think about the little illustration again, the legalist among us uh, will look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, look, you didn't sort the compost properly. Go back and do it again. But the Christians among us will say, you didn't sort the compost properly. Let me see if I can help you with that. It's a very different feeling if you're not a legalist. Both legalism and license, they're they're self-centered. License focuses on your desires. Um, Legalism focuses on your achievements. Both of them trap you then into serving yourself, trap you in the slavery of sin, the slavery that Jesus has freed us from through his death and resurrection. 8 verse 1, there is now, there is there, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of sin, of, of life, set me free from the law of sin and death. Lots to talk about, lots to think about. How about I pray? Um, and then we'll sing again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wait for Jesus to return, as we long for eternity with you, 
as we look forward to the time when our battle with sin will be finished, Lord, we can't fully appreciate everything you've done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection. And Lord, we can only begin to wonder at the, the home you're preparing for us. But Father, as we consider this part of Romans, please help us to understand, please help us to understand the seriousness of sin. Lord, please help us not to turn grace into a license to do whatever. Please help us not to become legalistic. But Lord, please help us to enjoy the freedom that comes with being your children. We pray that as a church that we'd be helping each other in this. And we pray in his name. Amen.